Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write a dissertation chapter that does not suck and eventually to get a job. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague, uh, Christopher Lawson. Christopher Lawson is a PhD candidate uh, at UC Berkeley. He also, like me, studies the best history in the world, which is British history. Uh, and uh, if you uh, are interested in more of what he says, you can find him on Twitter at Christopher L underscore T-O. That's Christopher L underscore T-O. Christopher Lawson is writing uh, his dissertation about uh, deindustrialization in 20th century Britain. He is, you know, something that makes me so furious. He's actually finishing his dissertation. He's going to get it done in a couple months. Uh, it is, uh, we started at the same time. He has like eight chapters written and I have two. Um, it's, it's, it's infuriating to see him. So put together and uh, uh, in command of his materials. Uh, um, welcome, welcome, welcome today, Christopher. Well, thank you for that extremely generous and somewhat uh, <laughs> uh, um, over the top introduction. But I, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so uh, your dissertation is about deindustrialization, right? right. It's, it's about this change from one kind of like economic and political uh, uh, configuration to another. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it might be helpful just to, to tell us a little bit about the story before, because you and I were both 80s kids. We both grew up in like deindustrialized neoliberal Mm. Uh, uh, I think um, I'm a little Anglo America, little younger than you, but you're a little, yeah. You're, <laughs> but we we are yeah. both from the the after. Like, yes, we absolutely. Don't have any experience oh, of 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 the the kind of of world that 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 people are hearkening back to? Tell me a little bit about what that is and when that is, and just give. I obviously don't know what I'm talking about with it. Give, tell us what, what. Well, I think I what's, mean what's the what's the, what's the good old day? This story obviously goes back to things that you. Do know very lot a very great deal about Britain as 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 we know is is in many ways the first industrial nation on earth and it industrializes for a variety of reasons but it it goes through a process um, that by the late nineteenth century um, has resulted in almost an absolute majority of the population working in some form of manufacturing or industrial industry. Um, what do we mean by industrialization, by the way? Like, what, what does that mean? Well, it means a, a process that that whereby populations move to urban centers, become engaged in in increasingly large scale production of goods outside of an agricultural setting for sale in in the market and. Increasingly, this takes the shape of, of what we would now think of as, a, as factories. This is a fairly slow process, and in Britain, it takes actually a very long time before we have uh, um, an industrial structure that's dominated by large factories and large businesses. And to some extent, it's never, a fully, it's never fully completed. And part of the challenge that Britain has in the period that I study is that it, its industrial structure remains very fragmented as compared with its competitors in Germany or the United States. And that is a, a legacy of this long and very early process of industrialization. So over a couple hundred years from like 1770 to mm. like 1920, yes. you have this process where, where people go from the countryside into the cities and they start working for a wage yes. and they make, what do they do when they work? They make stuff in the factory. Yes. That sounds crap. Why are people nostalgic for it? 
Like when well, I think of the fact, like, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, part of uh, part of the nostalgia, I think, comes from um, the experience of factory life and its impacts on on people's identity mm. and the process of yeah, wage labor sucks. Working in a coal mine sucks, but it's almost as a result of the fact that it sucks and the fact that that there's this overbearing power of of capital and you're selling your your labor and you're have don't have a lot of power in that relationship that you get the development of organized labor and you get the development of an idea of of belonging to a certain class of people who do a certain type of thing and out of that comes working class politics it comes a, a form of culture that's associated with work but is also existing outside of work and includes people who are not actually laborers like their families um so even even though the the work uh in the factories might have been you know uncomfortable yeah around these factories there was a culture that people got a lot of enjoyment of and a lot of identity out of and there were soccer teams and people drinking at the music hall and stuff like that Yes, absolutely. And I mean, these, I think it's important that we don't over glorify any of these things. Um, and we don't ignore the, the highly gendered nature of a lot of working class culture. And we don't ignore the um, extent to which lives remain very difficult. But um, certainly this cultural aspect of working class life is very important. And it's very important. It will become very important in my story, as deindustrialization occurs, the sinews of these working class cultures are, understandably, they are, they are threatened and they are sort of torn apart um, by the big political economic changes. And, and, and the, the effects of that are quite significant. Great. Not all bad. But Bef- before we get to, to deindustrialization, yes. let's just finish fleshing yes, yes. out this story of what made uh, uh, industrial Britain a, 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 a nice or enjoyable place to, 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 to live. So you, you, we discussed a little bit about like the cultural aspect of that, but uh, the chapter that we're discussing today is about politics and economics. So yes. tell me a little bit about how politics played in with this. Like what, what you know, when I imagine and I, again, you know that after 1914, I know nothing. I literally, I know nothing at all. So forgive me, but when, when I think about this 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 time, I just think that that it's kind of like some social democratic paradise where you know there's where, where, where the state like helps out and like there's like kind of like they they make sure that capitalism doesn't run roughshod over people and like they give unemployment insurance and like unions are happy and that's 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 how i imagine it like i think of like 1950s britain just and again i had no i don't know what i'm talking about so please correct me but i think of it as like the America that Bernie Sanders wants, right? <laughs> like healthcare, housing help, all that. Well, there is a part of that story that's absolutely true. We 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 talked a little bit just now about the the development of labor politics and the development of um, working class culture as well. That part of the outgrowth of labor politics is a fundamental transformation, both from below and also from the adaptation of the elites. Uh, of politics, of high politics in the first half of the 20th century. And there's a lot of pieces to that. There's the reshaping of the Liberal Party before the First World War. There's the 
the upheaval of the interwar period, which is a period of quite intense class conflict in many ways, but also a period of, of substantial growth in the provision of welfare, we get to a point by 1945 where the state has, um, where first of all, both of the major political parties are beholden to a very broad segment of the electorate for their political support. The Conservative Party, it's important to remember, we think of, and often we think of in, in British politics that, that working class people in this period would have voted Labour and the middle class would have voted Tory. We think probably about a third of, of working class people in 1945 probably voted Conservative because, of course, oh, the wow. vast majority of people in Britain were working class of some variety. As I said, a majority worked in, in industry. So the Conservative Party is not only interested in taking care of of working class people because they feel paternalistic. They're also dependent upon them for votes. So we have a number of institutions. We have a number of institutions, and which by the Conservative Party. Party. Yes. And, and that's going to become important. You mentioned the, the Liberal Party uh, earlier. But, yeah, that's right. I, but I the jumped liberals, around there. But let's, I think that that's another important thing yeah. to, to, to just highlight because by 1950, there's not like the Liberal Party doesn't really exist. Yeah. What, what that's would the low, party, that is the absolute low point of its of its. Life. But who replaces them as the left party? Because I think this is an important uh, 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 thing to point out right. about this, the institutional sure. configuration of the 50s. Like what right. Are, so, what, yeah, in the, in the period, uh, particularly the period bef- immediately before and immediately after the First World War, there is a, a, a breakdown in the sort of coalition that makes up the Liberal Party in Britain that is being sort of pulled at. The Liberal Party is being pulled at in several different directions. It's being, it is the party of... The, of the manufacturing class, and it is the party increasingly of organized labor. This works pretty well in a 19th century context where many of the sort of big political divides are over are over things like the corn laws and things like voting rights and, and um, the role of the aristocracy. But in the 20th century, when, especially after the First World War, when we have this, these very intense class conflicts, the Liberal Party is unable to balance those two conflicting poles. And so the Labor Party... Um, which develops slowly in the period before the First World War as sort of an ancillary almost of the, lab- of the Liberal Party, um, comes into its own and actually forms government a couple of times in a minority situation in the interwar period. And by the, the f- end of the Second World War, it is one of the two major parties in British politics. And it, along with the Conservative Party, which, as I said, is also embraced a large working class electorate, both of these parties are implicated in hopefully ensuring that post-war Britain will not experience the kinds of class conflict that the interwar period did. There's a, a great demand and desire after the Second World War for a society that isn't riven like this and where um, there isn't as much fear for one's Social security, and so both parties go forth on plan to. I don't think it's a, a social democratic paradise, but to in, expand the welfare state to take care of what is seen as the primary needs of the citizen. Great. So, so we have two big political institutions: the yes. conservatives, who are like paternalistic, but from your story, they're not like American Republicans now, which is just destroy the state. No, they they have a, a, a an act. Of, they imagine an active role in the state. Yes. Then you have the Labour Party, who also imagine an active role in the state, and probably. Yeah, you know, also want to like not make a social democratic utopia or something, but still want to increase the power of the working class. Yes. Tell, can you just yeah, there are some like, fundamental differences, but yeah, it, it, are there what can you just briefly like tell us some of the institutions that come out of this? Because there's a couple like right. big institutions in British life, right, that come out of this 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 time. 
Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 the government that's elected in 1945 is a labor government. Um, the first time labor has ever won a majority. And they, and they implement a series of welfare reforms um, that are in many ways building upon things that had already been done in the interwar period. So I think it's important that we don't see this as a fundamental break. In many ways, these are coming out of actually a liberal tradition that goes back to David Lloyd George. But the creation of, um, of the National Health Service. Wait, that uh, happens now? Yes. Okay. Yes. 1947 is the, is the creation of the National Okay. Council. So that's big. That's, that is the, yeah. I think the most important. That is the, the piece that holds everything else together. Again, Bernie Sanders. This is <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That is what Americans uh, have been fighting for, 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 and for ever since then. And, and Britain is really the first country to have it, to have a national health service free of the point of use that covers as much as it does. There are other countries that have piecemeal health insurance at this time, but Britain is really unique in this. And Britain, initially, prescription drugs are free, uh, glass uh, spectacles are free, dental care is free. They actually sort of pull back on that eventually because they run out of money. But, um, but this is a big deal. And in addition to that, there is... Um, there's a whole number of other pieces. There's a huge housing program. So there's a, an effort. And this is, again, not a new thing, but it's a very important part of Labour's vision for Britain is that social housing should be widely available and not restricted simply to the sort of poorest in society. The, the state pension already exists, but it's, it's sort of institutionalized. There's a number of there's a reworking of unemployment insurance to make it universal there's uh, is there anything happening with trade because i know that like you mentioned the liberal party and i think of these guys as when i want to conjure up what their politics is i just think of the economist you know the, the mm, right right yeah, they, yeah absolutely the economist comes out of the the uh, uh the liberal tradition yes absolutely um, i think it it was the anti-corn law leagues newspaper right yes um, I believe so. and so that whole thing about like abolishing tariffs free trade you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, right. That's the Liberal Party line. What's, but now, like when I think mm. of working class politics in America, a lot of it hinges on trade, namely yes. protectionism. So is there stuff happening with, with, with trade and empire? That's a really good too, point. So, and this is a whole, this is a very big transition that's not, that the Labour Party is only playing a small role of this. The working classes in the 19th century would have thought of as being primarily in support of free trade. Free trade is thought of as, Yes, it's a liberal idea, but it's a it's an idea that has has mass appeal in 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 Britain in this period. I don't think it has the same mass appeal in the United States. Um, yeah, people would get like posters, yeah, of, you know, free trade loaves that would show like a loaf, of, a big loaf of bread, and say, "This is a free trade loaf of bread," and then next to it would be a small loaf of bread. Yes, that's the protection exactly, loaf of bread. and that that comes from I think the particular nature of the British political economy. It comes from the power of the aristocracy, the fact that Britain doesn't grow its own food, um, more than half of its own food by the by the middle of the nineteenth century. But so what, what's happening in the tw- but in is, we're having yeah we're having a, a fairly substantial transition. It's happening for a, a number of reasons it's happening because of Britain's changing position in the world um, in the interwar period. Britain, after the Second World War, has a need to protect, to protect some of its industries from international competition, particularly from the United States, because uh, there isn't a whole lot of competition from Europe at this point, at least for the first few years after the war. It essentially is signed up and becomes part of a sort of a managed international order hmm. that we think of as being uh, coming out of 
a lot of the work of the economist John Maynard Keynes. That so, so we have the situation where like Britain for a long time was really good at making everything. Right. It could make anything cheaper than anywhere else on earth. Yes. But then slowly a bunch of places caught up, That's particularly right. Germany and the U.S. Yeah. Um, but still here in this social democratic high point in the 50s. Britain doesn't have a ton of threat in its key industries. That's right. Most of the world, except for in certain places, the U.S., maybe Germany, maybe, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, is Japan in the dust? Not really. So, well, it, it comes up, it changes pretty quickly, but there's a moment from about 45 to 57 when Britain is still the second largest industrial power potentially on Earth, or at least in the free world, and has a fairly large set of international markets, some of which are imperial in nature, some of which are are not. And so we shouldn't we shouldn't say that that it's it's very easy to say, well Britain is a mess in nineteen forty five. And it is in many ways. It's it's heavily dependent upon the United States for for financing. Um, it has enormous international debts and it has an empire that that is increasingly it's increasingly unable to control. But it is a still a, an advanced industrial economy where with huge industrial employment and huge markets around the world. So, um, okay, good. I like, I like this, but I, so I think that we, we've described before, right? Like what I'm still going to call like uncle Bernie's socialist. Yeah. What happens in your time period in the seventies? Like, cause I know that this doesn't continue. No. Like I've heard a bunch of different words tossed around to describe it. And I, I I want you to help me understand them. Sometimes people say deindustrialization. Sometimes people talk about this thing called neoliberalism that I never really understand. Can, are they related? Are they different? Like, well, I think they're related. I think um, that's at the core of the work I do, but it's, Often these things are not necessarily related. We think of so. Let's start with the, the the industrial story. Britain, as I said, powerful, second largest industrial economy in the free world in 1945. But fr- big problems that are just below the surface: fragmentation of industry, uh, underinvestment, outdated equipment, and this could be an entirely separate lecture, but complicated relations between management and the trade unions. Hmm. And as we go forward, especially from the late 1950s on, Britain faces the return of competition from the continent of Europe and eventually, and obviously from the United States and eventually from other countries in Asia by by the time we get to the late 60s and 70s. So, so after the Second World War, like... A lot of these places got bombed. Like yeah. Belgium, yeah. Germany, a lot of the industrial heartland got bombed out. And so, like, Britain just doesn't have a ton of competition. Late right. 50s are saying there's a lot of industrial competition to yes. Britain. That means that it's no longer able to make the things that it used to make yeah. competitively. And this is a very basic point that I think we'll come to when we talk about steel mills. But the reality is that in a place like West Germany, um, a lot of these, a lot of their steel mills were destroyed during the Second World War. Now that's bad in the short term, very bad, obviously for the German economy. But in the long term, it has an interesting effect because the steel mills are rebuilt and they are built. You get the best steel mills. You get the best steel mills, and Britain is struggling with that. It's struggling with outdated equipment, um, and it's it's very hard to to raise the capital in Britain at this point to 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 modernize it. Um, equipment. There's a number of reasons for that. I think uh, part of it is simply problems in the British banking sector that are 
sort of beyond the scope of my work. But also, I think the uh, the fragmented nature of industry, which means that companies are not big enough to be able to raise the capital they need. No, so we have this moment yeah. where there's a no, like Britain is not only getting competition yeah. from uh, places that 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 it didn't have competition from. But the way that its industry is organized has a number of yeah. uh, uh, defects or, mm-hmm. or things that are just making it not able to, to adapt to that competition. It has outdated plant. Yeah. Uh, it has a, an industrial relations uh, uh, situation that you say isn't productive. Yeah. And uh, it's fragmented. Whereas in America, like it's big business. All yeah, right. exactly. And in Germany, you have uh, might have a weird sort of craft in- industry situation. Um, right there's there's a lot yes, of small that's true. shops that's a good point. making highly specialized that's a good point and it, that's uh, a, flexible uh, yeah. uh, uh, things Britain is point. making mass market things like steel yeah. bars but still doing so in, in relatively smaller plants that's exactly that right. less able to get financing yeah. so we call this deindustrialization I don't want to spoil the story but those you know if we imagine the 19th century as a, a bunch of people going to cities with factories and the factories have smoke going out of them i imagine in the 70s that picture the big factories the smoke sacks stop yes right? the factories shut down right so this is yeah this studying deindustrialization is a really complicated process because it's not it's not a one way story and there's a lot of of complicating factors but generally speaking starting with some of the sort of what often we call first industrial revolution industries industries that date back to the early 19th century those are the things that that are are important that i study yes they're for their coal power yes coal which is a huge industry in britain again with a very fragmented structure it's been nationalized but it's very fragmented very small scale uh, mining in many deep and deep underground unlike the many of the American mines that are much closer to the surface. And so these industries are the first, and cotton textiles and steel are the first to really struggle to deal with foreign competition because Mm -hmm. it's relatively easy. There's a relatively low capital bar for countries, including countries, not just Europe and Japan, but also third world countries like India to, to compete at a very high, at a, at a very, very strongly with British textiles and with the British um, steel industry. So those industries go into a process of managed decline. And I can talk more about that managed aspect sort of in the context of, of the chapter we we're going to talk about. But at the same time, there, the industrial economy, I, I want to emphasize in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's still a lot of things going on in Britain that are very positive in the industrial economy. So there's still a lot of, of industrial jobs. By the 1970s, though, um, we're seeing crises across industry. We're seeing Mm. it in the automobile industry, which had been booming in Britain. We're seeing it um, even more so in steel. We're seeing it in shipbuilding in a huge way. Um, This is partly linked to a a series of global transformations in the economy. Obviously, the 1970s is a period of of upheaval in in the world economy because of the oil crisis, because of... Um, well, what, inflation, but but Britain's is particularly um, Britain's industrial economy for the reasons we just discussed is particularly susceptible to these shocks, and it goes through a period of extremely um, significant retrenchment. And 
it's in this context, I think, that we can maybe talk about neoliberalism. But I, I that was that was so. I just I just want to sum up some of the big things that yeah. you said, and then you can tell me how this this interacts with neoliberalism. And right. Maybe tell me what neoliberalism is, so I don't sound so damn at parties. Wow. But for, first, let me. So it's, so one of there's what the big one of the big things that you're saying is that deindustrialization doesn't just happen in every single manuf- manufacturing sector in Britain. Right. It's particularly those old mm. manufacturing industries that are associated with the first industrial revolution. Yes. Coal mining, uh, metallurgy, shipbuilding. Yes. And why are they being outcompeted? Because they, they're they relatively easy to do yeah. um, once you have sure. enough capital. So That's you true. can make a, a big steel plant where you have cheap energy and cheap ore and cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, 1970s, it's more economical to make steel in India than it is to make steel in Manchester, right? Yeah. Um, but you, you you took pains to say that even though this is uh, 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 not happening everywhere, it's not mm. happening in every industry, it, in the 1970s, it's increasingly happening in a linked way with a bunch of different industries, yes, right? Yes, that's absolutely okay. right. Uh, now, that what, what on earth is neoliberalism? <laughs> Or how does neoliberalism, <laughs> if, if we don't want to go into the whole definition, how does neoliberalism interact with, with this process of deindustrialization? Right. Yeah. If the only thing that I can think of with neoliberalism is some sort of like punk thing with Margaret Thatcher, like saying there is no, there is no society. Yeah. Like, and like, that's, that's it. And I think there's some people, economists in Chicago who are influenced to in it, but I just right. don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I tend to alternate between one day thinking neoliberalism is explains everything and one day thinking it's a meaningless concept. And I, I actually think that's, I'm not alone in that. So one, <laughs> I want your listeners to understand that neoliberalism is a very fraught concept. There are a lot of people who find it extremely generative, a lot of academics, and there are a lot of people who, who feel that it's overused and, and has increasingly lost meaning. So, but that aside, I want to, I want to, the point I want to make about neoliberalism is we, yes, we do tend to think of neoliberalism as a high political or high ideological, high academic response in many ways to this sort of crisis, apparent crisis of, of economies in the 1970s. Um, the, not just in Britain, but also in the United States and, and across the Western world, there, the, the, the things that governments and central banks have traditionally done as encouraged by economists like John Maynard Keynes to to deal with economic troubles through fiscal stimulus, um, through monetary stimulus, um, through intervention, targeted intervention in the industry does not do not seem to be working in the 1970s. Yeah. And so so after from between like 1945 and like 1965 or something, yeah. there's a whole bunch of tools that Uncle Bernie's socialist utopia is yes. using exactly. to help with shocks. And exactly. they involve fiscal stimulus. So just throwing money at the problem, yes. New Deal, stuff like that. But in the 70s, there's a series of shocks and these uh, uh, Keynesian responses aren't working. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's certainly true, I think, to a large degree, that this failure of established economic ideas allows an opening for people to to be influenced by ideas that are not exactly new. I mean, some of our some of the people who we think of as as leading 
the shift towards a neoliberal concept of the economy where the state role is more restricted uh, are people like Frederick von Hayek who have been saying these things for 30 years. They've been saying this since the Second World War. But but now they're, they're get, they get a hearing. Well, so before we just before we delve deep, what are these things? What what is neoliberal? Can you just right. give me like a, a you you mentioned that it has something to do with the yes. state taking a less active role. Just can you give me like a potted definition of what what that is? Like what on earth is 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 are these ideas? Like if we could right. characterize them broadly. Well, certainly they. I think they must be first understood as a as a critique of Keynesianism. Folks like Hayek and and his fellow economists are arguing that the fiscal and monetary stimulus does more harm than it's worth. Mm. The economy should, that the government impact on the economy often does more harm than good. And that individuals in a free market um, will respond to the signals that they are given and should be left to respond to those signals and they will do a better job of organizing the economy than any government intervention could do. And thus the structure that sort of, that manages the economy that we've been talking about and the, the safety net that holds people from falling out of the bottom of the economy when they lose their jobs should be lessened to as great a degree as possible so that those natural market forces mm. can function effectively in providing the signals to people so that they make good choices and that they um i can see this playing out a little bit now yeah. in in the current american presidential debates right like yeah so uh the left of the party wants something like the nhs that, yeah that is a big institution that's run by the state that corrects some of the abuses of mm -hmm. capitalism mm -hmm. but then there's an argument that says no all of those sort of interventions by the state are distorting yeah that we are not going to have the most in order to have the most efficient economy we need to take the state out as much as humanly yes. possible so so the 70s, the neoliberalism is the increasing popularity of those kinds of ideas, right? Right. Okay, great. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. So how does that enter? What, so, oh, this is going to be easy because I can just imagine uh, the right-wingers, like they look at these deindustrializing places and they say, um, let's do nothing. <laughs> well, that is certainly part of it. It's certainly... Um, and to continue on from what we've been talking about, about sort of what I would what I describe as the high level parts of this story of neoliberalism. Yeah. And we'll get to the to the popular aspects. I want to talk about those. But yeah, the the government in Britain has been intervening in an incredible way, and in a way that that is makes any American government intervention in this period pale in comparison. So when Upper Clyde Shipbuilders goes bankrupt in 1970, uh, 1972 to the conservative government of the time bails it out because the view is that it's upper class shipbuilders is so important to the to the social well-being of Glasgow and the central part of Scotland that it cannot be allowed to fail hmm. and it has to be managed um, by the state. We conservatives did that. Yes, and this that particular one that particular um, intervention. I mean, if you uh, are un unlucky enough to have to read Margaret Thatcher's biography, she speaks a lot about this and she's not the only one that for her, because she's a conservative 
she's a member of the cabinet in this conservative government in 1972. And for her, this is a moment when she starts to to be influenced by these neoliberal mm. ideas that I'm talking about. She starts to think we as a, as conservatives, we need to get back to to believing in the free market. We cannot keep doing this. It's not working. We're going to have to keep bailing these companies out. Um, maybe at a certain point, the economy would be, be better off if we let upper class shipbuilders fail and mm. um, s- unleash the uh, the social and economic potential of the people of Britain to, to make something else <laughs> instead yeah. of ships um, or do something else with their time. So that is definitely going on. And the... the dysfunction in a lot of these industries that seems to be it that seems to be made, being made worse by management by government is influencing people not just in the conservative party um but in many walks of life to to be influenced by these neoliberal ideas and so um that's a big part of the story okay so you have this situation where and I'm just this is going to be cartoonish, but bear yeah. with me. So in our you know little view, you know video of the city for like a couple hundred years, we once right. had a fa- all the people go into the big city with a factory. Mm-hmm. The factory is uh, uh, sputtering out smoke because it's going you know yeah. going going full blast. Then in the 70s, the factory the smoke starts to decline a little bit because there's international competition. Yeah, but then successive government interventions prop up the industry right right? but then event neoliberalism is like just no no stop stop saving them yeah let them let them know their own devices yeah okay let them fail which sounds it's interesting uh uh, we can think about the banks in 2008 yeah but um (laughs) but but the other part of the story and i think if it's okay i just want to mention this before we go on which is more my contribution to this whole debate because what i've said up till now i think is 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 widely understood by historians but what i am interested in is this question we i want to come back to this I, when i said before that you know the conservative party in the post-war period had this large working class support the funny thing is that even when margaret thatcher is prime minister and has shifted the conservative party to a uh in the direction of a, of a neoliberal form of economics where they're letting industries fail and they're promoting this idea of individual responsibility and entrepreneurialism, there is still a large percentage of the working class that's voting for this. It may be a different percent, but it's, it's a large percent. And so the, the question is, what's happening there? Mm. Is this just a top-down phenomenon? Is neoliberalism just some folks in, in government and in in, in um, universities, the University of Chicago, as you mentioned, who are thinking up a new form of economic management and imposing it on people. No. There's been a number of historians who have noted that in the 1970s, we see, there's a historian at, at UCL who calls it popular individualism, that people who had traditionally defined themselves as working class are increasingly not defining themselves as that. And they're increasingly, they're thinking, they maybe are using the term ordinary people. And that may seem like yeah, a, a distinction without a difference, but it's, but considering this, considering the role, as we talked about right back at the beginning of class solidarity in the formation of culture and in the formation of people's political understandings, this is quite a big, a big shift. And we're also seeing people 
when they're being asked about the role of state in society, they're giving surprising answers. They're increasingly believe that the state shouldn't be um, um, propping up failed industries. They increasingly are skeptical of the role of trade unions. They are increasingly think that other people around them are taking too much from the system. Hmm. Um, and this isn't everybody. This is a this is a section of this is a section of society, but it's a it's a numerically important section, and it's a growing section, and it's not simply just middle class people who think the poor need to work harder. This is a segment of increasingly of people who maybe even worked in these industries, but who feel that um, that the the social democratic system hasn't worked for them, and. Unfortunately, most historians don't seem to... Well, there's a lot of different... Historians have put forward a variety of different explanations for what this this sort of popular ideological shift, what's causing it. Mm. Maybe it's the people are just being indoctrinated by the neoliberal elite. Yeah, like they, they, you know, those, those University of Chicago <laughs> yeah. economists, they're very persuasive. Right. Well, yeah. I think, I mean, and... Um, we had a colleague here a couple of years ago from Europe who was working on stuff like that, about how they make neoliberal ideas popular, how they mm. how people in, in, in universities and in, and in the, the newspapers try to make fairly complex ideas make sense to people in, who, who don't have a lot of formal education. But what I think is also going on here is that we have to remember that this sort of social democratic Bernie Sanders utopia that existed after 1945, it promised a certain number of key things to people. It promised mm. the NHS. It promised, uh, you know, cradle to grave health care and support. It promised full employment, at least for the white men. Um, and that is obviously a whole nother story that we should get into, but maybe not today. These pillars... As we've just discussed, in the 1970s, they're breaking. The full employment part, most importantly. And um, in particular, the the failure of the of the of these promises to account for women who work in factories mm-hmm. and for ethnic minorities who work in factories are is very self-evident. And so well, make it self-evident. I don't. I don't exactly. Why is that self-evident? Like, well, why, why, right. Why, that's a, why that's is that failing? Well, because the the part of it is simply just the structure of some of the welfare provisions that unemployed women can't always, if they're married, they can't go on unemployment insurance hmm. as easily as as their husband could if they lost their job. Because there's an assumption that their work is not um, essential to the family income. But in yeah. a lot of these places, I mean, we. We should, I guess I should have mentioned this before, but the textile industry in the 1960s is majority female employment um, and, and especially in the sort of the line, the, the line work in, the, in spinning in particular and weaving to a lesser extent. These are ma- the majority of the people working in them are women. And this has always been the case. But the welfare state is, is built on the assumption that in, hopefully only the husband will have to work and the woman can stay home with the kids and the trade unions that exist. There are trade unions that, that are, uh, that exist and that these women textile workers are members of, but it's the trade unions don't fight as hard for the female jobs that they do for the male. It's just, it's, it's really incredible how, how this goes. And, but that is just a piece in this larger story that I'm trying to say that in the 1970s, the social democratic welfare state is not delivering the goods. Yeah. It's not delivering the goods for, for folks in a lot of these communities. And um, a lot of people are, are turning to, to other ideas and other explanations. And they, 
part of that is, I think, yes, a political, there's, there are a lot of politicians with a lot of explanations for people's problems in some of these racially mixed areas. There's a increase in racial tension because hmm. of a rise in people blaming the other for, for problems in the communities. But there's also, I think, a lack, lack, a loss of faith in the promises of social democracy, a lack of a loss of faith in the idea that as being a part of the working class, the working class is sort of a unified group and it's going to get going to increasingly get better off and people are starting to think well actually i'm just going to look after myself um and i don't yeah it's yeah it, it's it, that's it's the neoliberal idea it's yeah. the idea that like look the my problem is all these other jokers mucking about yeah i'm just gonna look after me yeah okay that makes sense. and so that is for me deindustrialization is the critical piece in in exposing, in some cases, the contradictions of the social democratic welfare state, its failure to account for dual income families, its failure to um, respond to the changing demographics of society, but also the uh, it's a response to the failure of social democratic welfare state to deliver the goods. And when the state is unable to um, respond to the rise of increasingly mass unemployment in some areas in the 1970s. Um, it loses Legitimacy. legitimacy yeah. in the eyes of, of a lot of working class people. So, I mean, so um, Uncle Bernie's socialist utopia promises a bunch of th- things. Yeah. And to do those things, it's using a bunch of levers. Like yeah. Keynesian economic policies. Yes. In the 70s, these levers start to break down or they don't, there's problems they can't deal with. And one of the things that your work is showing is not only were politicians uh, turning towards neoliberal solutions, mm. people were responding by uh, taking neoliberal attitudes towards the problems. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Tell us about steel. Right. So the steel this is latest chapter. Hot yes. Off the presses. This is this is this yes. is this is saved last night. Last night we finished it. So this is hot off the presses. Hopefully you remember After the midnight. key points. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> tell us about steel. Right. So the steel industry is obviously one of these industries that goes back a long way to the early 19th century, and it's it's spread out across the United Kingdom. There are steel. Sheffield is often thought of as the steel city, but there are steel, large steel industries. By the by, the beginning of the 20th century, there are large steel industries all across the the UK. You just need coal and uh, uh, exactly. iron ore, and it's 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 harder to make steel than it is to make other iron. Yes. Right? it's it's uh, after the Bessemer process is invented, it requires some special plant. But before the mm-hmm. Bessemer process, it's still it's still hard. But steel is a much stronger. Uh, and durable material yes. than normal iron. Absolutely. Um, so most of the stuff that you as a person deal with now is steel, not iron. Yes, um, that's right. It's, yes. it's, you might have a cast iron pot, um, but most of the stuff that you deal with is, is steel because it's just right. so much stronger. Yes. Uh, but harder to make. Absolutely. And so, yes, by the, by the 20th century, a lot of these industri- uh, industrial complexes, which had grown out of iron, um, have moved into steel. And so to put this in a nutshell very quickly, the steel industry 
let's let's fast forward to 1945. Basically, the steel industry looks a lot like what I was just describing. It's a pretty good example of the kind of industrial structure that we're seeing in a lot of industries. It is um, pretty fragmented. It's a very impressive industry. The, the Britain has the second largest. Um, it's the second largest exporter of steel. It's not the second largest steel industry because I forgot about the Soviet Union, but it's the it's the second largest exporter of steel in the world. And steel is useful for everything. And steel and steel Cars, is useful for everything. Buildings. And so it's it's deeply intertwined in a whole set of industrial processes all across the UK, which need different kinds of steel. Which need different kinds of steel. So there, they, yeah, it's so there's these complexes of steel production. There are sort of rolling mills and there. They're, they're integrated mills, they're specific rolling mills, cold rolling mills, hot rolling mills. There's a lot of different things. But um, there'll be like one plant that just makes like the steel for a certain kind of shape. Exactly. Yes, yeah. there, there is. And after the Second World War, the steel industry is um, – the government doesn't really know what to do with the steel industry. And that becomes – a big problem because over the next 20 years, the steel industry is nationalized, privatized, and renationalized. Um, each time the nationalization looks a little different, um, the compensation structure look, is, looks a little different. But basically, the goal is to create a steel industry that um, that can prop up, that can compete in international markets, um, and can maintain its position as one of the great steel industries in the world, but can also maintain employment in critical areas of the country. And that is going to be a real problem because um, the steel industry employs about a quarter million people um, and it tends to employ people in some of in some of these sort of older industrial areas where unemployment in the interwar period was very high. Mm. And so the government is very concerned that these steel industries be maintained, even if they are not particularly competitive, because they do not want to return to the problems of mass unemployment that were seen in the north of England and in Wales and in Scotland in the interwar period. But on the other hand, there's never a commitment to making the steel industry this isn't this isn't a Soviet steel industry, right? This yeah. is there's there, so they're saying there's like, this goal. There's, it's they're trying to do both things at once. They're trying yeah. to make the steel industry a function of sort of regional development policy, and also make it a competitive, outward facing, capitalist industry. And that is a tricky thing to do. It works pretty well for the first twenty years because there aren't a lot of competitors um, for British steel producers. And there is a buoyant internal market in Britain because this is the, still the peak of the industrial age. There's a lot of, you know, the car industry is booming. Um, but the steel industry is being used for two different things that are sort of contradictory. And it's not being modernized effectively as a result because. So there's there's two there's there's two problems. There's a yeah. local problem. That the steel industry is the central industry of a lot of lo yeah. localities. Like it's the big factory in a lot of places yes. that suffer from unemployment. And so if the steel industry dies, these communities die. Yeah. So one thing the government is trying to do 
is keep these communities alive by keeping the steel industry alive. Yeah. But the other problem that they have to do is to make sure that this, these steel industries are competitive on the world market, which means new kinds of plants, new kind of industrial organization. And it might mean some rationalization of, yes. of production. Yeah. And so you're saying that there's this juggling act that happens where the government is trying to muck, muck in the steel industries. Yeah. National, first it nationalizes them all, which means the government owns it, then it privatizes. Hey, you're private, you know, private yeah. companies, then it nationalizes it again. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of works. It kind of works in the short term, but, it, but the seeds of real problems are set. And the best example I can give of this kind of this contradictory, complicated relationship between government and steel is in Scotland. In the the center of the Scottish steel industry is this place um, called Motherwell, which is sort of closer to Glasgow, but sort of right in the middle of the industrial area of Scotland. Um, it's not a great location for the steel industry by the middle of the 20th century. It's not on. It's not close to water. There's a railway connection, but but it's it's not well linked to transport and there's not a whole lot of industry other than the shipbuilding industry that relies on that steel in the in the in the neighboring communities but it is an area of persistently high employment un unemployment sorry <laughs> um and it had been during the the interwar period and so the government is being pressured, and this is a conservative government, is being pressured by um, community groups and by the trade unions and by sort of a broad spectrum of Scottish society to invest in modernizing this steel industry in Scotland. From a business point of view, the best thing to do is probably to put the steel, put a new steel mill on the coast. Um, but the unemployment problem is in Motherwell, mm. and the the expertise are in Motherwell because that's where the the steel industry is being based. And so the government, a conservative government, gives money to a private company, which the private company actually doesn't really want the money hmm. because they are worried about the long term financial consequences of this big investment they're making. Um, but they take the money because you know it's money. Um, and a steel mill is built, a new modern integrated steel mill in the middle of Scotland in the late 1950s and early 1960s. It remains open for 30 years and it is threatened with closure almost from the day it is opened. At the same time that it's being built, the, the government faces a similar set of pressures in Wales and, built, and provides money to build a, a very similar size mill there. At the time, there's a government report done that says that we don't actually need both of these. We could probably get by with one, and it should probably be one really big one, and it should be either on the coast or some, of Scotland or somewhere in England. But it ignores this because it's thinking particularly about this, this question of regional policy and unemployment. And so Ravenscraig is opened, um, and it's losing money basically from the beginning. But there's a. I, I just want to link this back to stuff yeah. you were talking oh, yeah, about yeah, earlier. Sure. Absolutely. Of of this is a conservative government, and the response is we have the, we have this problem of local unemployment. Yeah. And response is a paternalistic kind yeah. of Keynesian yeah. thing of dumping money on the problem. Hey, there's a problem with unemployment. What's we'll give you money to build a factory. Yeah. Right, so this is like the old style of of, of response towards the industrialization, right? Right, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's never going to work 
unless the government either goes all the way towards treating the steel industry as a form of regional policy by essentially ex- accepting that it's going to be permanently subsidized. Yeah. Um, or by going to some sort of command economy. Which means, uh, <laughs> so Uncle Bernie's steel industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Or that it's, um, that, it's, that it's going to have to structure it around market principles. And if that, w- if that had been the case, then Ravens Creek probably shouldn't have been built. Or it should have been built in a different place. So you, you um, have this contradiction so where they're, yeah. they're saying, we're going to make a new big modern steel yeah. mill. But that new big modern steel mill, even though it might be technologically sophisticated is organized in a way that that's not really economically feasible right absolutely and it becomes increasingly so unfortunately for the british steel industry it's around the time when when raven's craig is built 1962 when the steel industry starts to face a lot more competition first from europe and then from um from elsewhere it it's part of the reason actually why this is a sidebar and obviously one that's very pertinent to our present political situation but it's part of the reason actually why britain joins the uh, the European community in the 70s is because of the steel industry not being able to compete with not being able to sell its steel into Europe. Um, uh, what was what was the name of that 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 uh, conf- uh, 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 what became the EU at that time? Isn't it the coal and steel? Yes, it is originally yeah. the coal and steel community. Yeah, and um, that's uh, yeah a managed system for the fr- originally the French, German, and then Italian and, and Benelux steel industries that that um, Britain will eventually join later, and that will actually. Um, cause more trouble for Raven's Craig, but that's. So what can Raven's? What can this this troubled story of Raven's Craig tell us about neoliberalism? Because I can see its 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 foundation yes. as as an example of of this kind of bipartisan Keynesian yes. uh, paternalistic uh, industrial policy. How does its story? What how does what happens to it over the next thirty years tell us about? Uh, the story of neoliberalism. Well, yeah. So Ravenscraig, in some of the same ways that Upper Clyde Shipbuilders does, becomes this sort of um, test of faith for, for neoliberals in the late 1970s. To be a true neoliberal, you need to be ready to sacrifice Ravenscraig. And you get a whole bunch of people, including mostly in sort of the, the, the British Conservative Party and in um, who are determined to close Raven's Craig because what they of they see it as a symbol of everything that was wrong with this managed economy. And so it's going and but on the other hand, for many people in Scotland, it is a symbol of the state's commitment to managing the economy and ensuring a certain degree of full employment in Scotland. And that's an important the, the Scottish aspect of this, of course, is very important because this is a moment when Scotland is beginning in some ways to question its position in the Union, actually. Yeah. Um, and in the 1970s is really the first big explosion of, of support for Scottish nationalism. And it, there's a failed revolution, uh, the failed, not revolution, devolution, <laughs> failed referendum on devolution in the late 1970s um, over this question. And, and um, for folks in the Labour Party, and a very significant segment of the Scottish Conservatives, Ravenscraig is a symbol of that, of the British state's commitment to the Union and to supporting Scotland 
Mm-hmm. And Scotland's needs. And they recognize, as do the nationalists, that if that commitment were to be broken, that could have a serious impact on how Scots see their role and their position in the United Kingdom. So it becomes a um, shibboleth. It becomes yes. Ravenscraig, the, yes. the, the, the factory becomes a cultural symbol, both for the neoliberals, for whom it is a acid test of their commitment to making the hard choices that might hurt a community, but will be good for the collectivity and an acid test for uh, Scottish unionists yeah. and labor people uh, uh, who, for whom it's a, a test of their commitment towards Keynesian yeah. industrial policy. Exactly. Yeah. And that's essentially, I mean, the, the 13 years from the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979 to the closure of Ravenscraig in 1992 is basically, the story there is basically the playing out of this, of this, of this um, struggle. There is a determination basically right from the beginning to, to close Ravenscraig. Um, on the part of the Thatcher government and the people she puts in charge of the British Steel Corporation. British Steel is to be privatized in, it takes a long time, it's not privatized until 1988, but the goal is always to privatize it and the leaders believe that if British Steel is to be privatized, it must get rid of Ravenscraig. It will not, that is a critical part to making it into a fundamentally this, making the steel industry into fundamentally a, a market, a, a competitive market industry that can compete in the world and that is no longer also a, a, a tool of regional policy. That, they see that, like you said, as a, as a critical symbolic thing that has to be done and also important in terms of the, the actual financial stability of the company if it was to go private. So I have two questions to, to, yeah. to close. The yes. first is... Who won? Did the Keynesians win or did the Neoliberals win? <laughs> well, as in many of these kinds of stories, I think that uh, that it's complicated. The The mill is closed and through its closure, the commitment of, of government to that sort of managed economy is broken. And in the process of its closure, what we see actually is that, that even the opposition – uh, even the labor, the trade unions who are fighting to keep the mill open are actually using the rhetoric of of the um, of the neoliberals to defend the mill. So by the late 1980s, they're not actually arguing that the mill needs to be kept. Well, they are arguing that the mill needs to be kept open because it will cause mass unemployment in Motherwell. But they're also trying desperately to argue that the mill should be kept open because it actually could be profitable. And they're doing all these things. Commissioned these these reports, tons of reports. I've gone through thousands of pages of these reports, just taking pictures mostly, and then I never actually read them. But uh, <laughs> no, I read them. I read them. Um, uh, I, well, that's how that's his history. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of paper in the past. <laughs> I think, yeah, especially in this period, there's so much paper, right? Um, of these reports trying to prove that Ravenscraig could be profitable. They're not arguing that it. It should. They're arguing it should be kept open because look, it actually could be a a, a key piece of a of a privatized industry, or could it, it could maybe be broken off from the rest of the British steel industry, modernized, and then be made a profitable business. So they, they in that way, the neoliberals win. But the the sort of the conclusion of my story then is to think about what impact that closure has had on politics in Scotland and on. Obviously, it's had a profound social and cultural impact upon 
the community. I've been there. It's it's a very depressed area, um, but it's also the collapse of Ravens Craig spurs, I think, in many ways, a particular type of sort of social democratic Scottish nationalism, which we now sort of think of as the the core of Scottish nationalism. That wasn't always the case. The fight to keep it open and then continued struggle to keep certain certain pieces of the Scottish steel industry because there's a few mills that are left after Ravens Craig closed to keep them open shows actually that not only among the nationalists, but broadly speaking across Scottish society, a belief in the role of government in the economy is not lost. Yes, the, the neoliberals win. Uh, Ravens Craig is closed. The arguments for, for it being kept open seem to have been lost, but social democratic values persist. Mm. And that is, I guess, where we are today in Scotland in a, in a moment where, and across the UK, I mean, there's, yeah, social, there's, neoliberalism is maybe ascendant, but there is a considerable ideological conflict across the UK about the role of the state in the economy. And in Scotland, that's tied up in a particularly interesting debate about the role of, of, of a particularly Scottish state. And that, I think a lot of that comes out of, 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 a, of the trauma and disillusionment that the closure of Raven's Craig causes. My final question, what yes. happened to steel? There's still steel mills or, or in Britain? Yeah. There's a few and it's still a mess. I, I hate <laughs> to say it, but there there's a few steel mills left in the UK. They've, the privatization has um, has meant it's now it's they've changed hands several times in the last 20 years. This debate about the role of government in, in steel industry is still there. Now, yes, the neoliberals are ascendant, but um, but the government is constantly trying to keep open, and this is a conservative government's in charge right now. The remaining mills—they're not um, pouring tons of money into them like they would have in the 1970s. But steel and the persistence of the steel industry is still a very live issue in British politics. And um, so the the debates over that 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 we had 30 years ago over the collapse of Ravens Craig—they're still happening in in ways that the impact of Ravens Craig's lives on in those debates. Great. Thank you so much for joining My us, place. Christopher Lawson. Uh, thanks again to uh, uh, Jonathan Lear, who did our music, and to Duncan Barton, who did our art. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with your in-laws. In-laws love the show. Um, and do everything to the podcast that you do to things that you like on the internet. Uh, share us on all those things. Um, and again, I'm deeply jealous of Christopher because he's going to graduate years before me um, and write far quicker than I ever will. Uh, Christopher, hopefully uh, I'll speak to you again soon and we'll hear, have you come back on when you publish your book. <laughs> that sounds great. Yes, absolutely. I would love to.